very in favor. I'm 75. I went to a residential school in Muskogo in 1941 to 1949. And I had a very, very rough life. I was mistreated in every way. As a young girl, she was seven years old. She was pregnant. And what they did, she had her baby. They, they took the baby, wrapped it up in a nice pink outfit, took it downstairs. I was in the kitchen with the nun for cooking supper. They took the baby into the, uh, what do you call that, where they make a fire and all that to heat up the school, furnace room. They threw that little baby in there and burnt it alive. All you could hear was, that was it. And you could smell the, the, you know, the flesh cooking. Uh-uh. It's a big mistake when people say we were treated good. No way. There's a lot of things that happen in, in those boarding. And welcome. This is Kevin I need to go strong voice. It's here we stand again, November 13th. And that was the voice of Irene Fable. I want to ask you all a question as we kick off the show with her words, her remembrance. How did it make you feel to hear that? I know when I first heard it, I watched it. It was a CBC town hall meeting, July 2008. And she was speaking to a bunch of people in an audience. And there was this CBC uh, commentator holding a microphone up to her. And when she described that baby being burned alive by a Catholic priest at a Catholic school just east of Regina in 1944, I watched everyone's faces and nobody blinked. The, the woman holding the mic, her face was impassive. She didn't have any sense of horror. She didn't look disgusted or horrified or outraged, just blank. Now, that's something I want to talk about today because, unfortunately, it isn't just them. We all have that reaction. If you, you know, I know because I've sat through so many of these circles where people share these kind of stories. I've seen the result. I've had friends die. I've gone through this with them. And... If you really ask yourself what you're feeling and what you're thinking in those moments and you try to feel, all of a sudden you'll encounter a strange kind of numbness in your heart and mind, it, it, partly because it's outside your experience. You have no, hopefully, no experience of that kind of thing. And so it's kind of abstract, and yet there's something else going on. There's an actual numbness in our hearts and minds that we didn't even know was there. And I want to talk about that today because it's a barrier to us moving from simply hearing things and feeling like we're victims to actually taking action. And this is part of a whole bigger movement, of course, that's blossomed when we first began that movement into looking at genocide in Canada 25 years ago this February, actually. And I'm going to talk about that. February 9th, 1998, we held the first public forum ever on so-called Indian residential schools. It was Simon Fraser University Harbor Center in Vancouver. And I remember that night there was over 500 people there, almost all of them survivors. And it's the first time these stories were ever told and followed up by our tribunal that summer in 1998. So 25 years ago, coming up, uh, really kicked off this whole thing. And I know through all of that, what we realize is that it's blossomed into this global campaign. We understand the connection between genocide in one country and the whole COVID corporate tyranny happening all over the planet. If you can do it to one group, you can do it to all of us. And we're witnessing that. We're all going through it now, which is an advantage we have because we're all experiencing the same thing. It's not divide and conquer anymore. We're all under that same gun. So it's an opportunity to have an effect, you know, this golden moment given to us in history that we can actually change things. But we have to look at the things within ourselves that prevents that from happening. And I encounter this a lot, working in assemblies and common law courts. When you get people to the point of getting them to try to take action, they don't. There's that same numbness in mind and heart as when they hear these stories like Iron Fable or Lorna McNaughton. Same year, Lorna McNaughton saw Canadian soldiers shoot Native children and throw them into a ditch about two miles from the Brantford Anglican School. Brantford, Ontario. And, you know, so, I mean, it's the thing to realize is that there's something else going on. And I want to, I remember, uh, I'm going to read from a, a few of my books today, not only murderbydecree.com, 
but one called Fallen, which is, I call it the story of the Vancouver Ford. It was about four Native guys I worked with, one of whom, you know, William Coombs. Just a very heartfelt account of how they changed me and I changed them. And um, one of the things that, that in this book I, I remember, um, I, when I was 10, I, I went to the school in um, Winnipeg. And one of my teachers was a guy called Bernie Beer. And he said something to me during our social studies class, which really stuck in my brain. And he said, societies are like people. If they do enough wrong, they can't survive themselves. They just fall apart. They may think they're getting away with it, but in the long run, they can't escape what they've done and how it's diminished them. There's a moral compass that guides all of us. And if you deviate from it, you become nothing. And I, you know, I want to flag that word diminish because it's very important. We're in a process. I remember Jean-Paul Sartre said, the philosopher said, the price you pay conforming to this kind of society is that you remain a dead soul trying to awaken. And I know very much what he means. You know, I think we all do that, that temptation all the time to be numb and not feel anything and go along just so we don't get upset. But the price to pay is some of you diminishes. And, um, I put it another way in, uh, in something I wrote. I wrote uh, in relation to Canada and this crime of genocide. People caught in wrongdoing are afraid, and they have to deny their, their malfeasance. But when confronted with it, justified to themselves that the wrong is not actually a wrong. Black has to become white. The bigger the crime, the greater the normalization of it. Eventually, the streamlining evil diminishes a people's moral capacity to zero, and it makes them permanent and contented accomplices of the big lie, which to them is no longer a lie at all. And, you know, that's part of the dilemma here is that we're dealing with that kind of environment. You know, you see it all the time. The mass murder of children that we brought out got totally fogged for a long time. Finally, when the so-called mainstream adopts it, they diminish it. They normalize it. They they decriminalize it to the point now where people are saying, oh, yeah, a few hundred kids died, unfortunately. But that, what does that have to do with us now? You know, it, it's this ability for people's memory to be completely washed. And um, that's the nature of a group crime. And I want to talk about group crime today because it affects everything. It isn't just about genocide against children, native children. This is about everywhere. You know, as we know, whatever the crime, and there's three aspects to it that we're going to get into today. I call them the three C's. There's a crime, there's a cover-up, and then it's how it continues. Crime, cover-up, continuance. And, of course, our fourth C, which is our countering of it. How we counter it. How we overcome it. Now, the thing about group crime is that it's always legal and legitimate. And I went through that myself. when I, My life was obliterated legally. My wife and children taken from me blacklisted life destroyed by the United Church of Canada and all of Canada. I've experienced what that legal destruction is all about. So in the manner of any gang of medieval inquisitors, the biggest problem in the minds of the people in the church who I faced was that I wouldn't cooperate in my own destruction. And that's the way group crime is. When a whole group commits murder, no one is held to blame. The crime has no perpetrator since everybody's guilty. And so the individual killers can retreat into the crowd where they're sheltered and protected and reassured as everyone helps to hide the murder weapon and cover up the graves, as we've witnessed in Canada. When eyewitnesses come forward and shout loudly enough, the group hates them since they actually believe that they're guiltless and have nothing to do with the foul deeds. They start squawking to their victims about healing and reconciliation and forgiving and moving on, which is just a way to pretend that it all never happened. Well, that collective pathology of denial, friends, is even worse when the group is part of a religion. And the group crime is religious-based because then the biggest enabler is God. Predisposed to believe as absolute truth whatever someone in authority is telling them, churchgoers are perfect accomplices to crime, which is why so much of it goes on inside and by churches. But of course, I had to learn all that the hard way after years of hard kicks in my head since I myself was part of the big complicity. I remember William Coombs said to me once, you don't believe any of this shit, and you didn't believe any of it, did you, Kevin, until it happened to you, right? He was right. I didn't. It had to happen to me before I began to wake up to it. 
and that's the problem. Now, we're going to get into some more of that today, but I wanted to uh, encapsulate that in a short little story, which comes from the Onondaga people, who we know as the Iroquois. They had this tale of who they call Thunderboy, who was made from a, a sky being and an earthly mother. And when he was born, the mother was told by the great spirit Manitou that Thunderboy could dwell with her on the earth, but only so long as he never suffered the hatred or violence of another, not even so much as a harsh word. For even the slightest worldly attack would cause Thunderboy to return to the sky world and be with his father. Well, knowing the world and its ways, uh, Thunderboy's mother hid him from anyone in their village, safe in their longhouse, not even taking him out into the pasture when she planted or gathered corn or did the chores with the other women. And so as an infant and then as a young boy, Thunderboy stayed hidden in their home, gently loved and protected by his mother. Well, one day, and this is a lot like the, the Jesus and the Buddha legends, one day when he was barely 10 years old, Thunderboy grew restless and curious about the world outside, especially when it rained, and in the distant thunder he could hear his father's voice. So that morning when his mother was off doing her work, Thunderboy crept outside and explored the village, and he marveled at the beauty of the world he had not seen. Well, soon one of the older women in the village, who was too crippled to do any work, noticed Thunderboy, and not recognizing him, she called him over to her. As he approached, she called out to him, Whose son are you, hey? Come over here. Well, Thunderboy didn't understand her words, but he walked closer anyway to take a look at her. The old woman asked him again, and when he still didn't answer, she reached out and smacked him hard on the face and yelled, You stupid little boy, why don't you show me respect? And in that moment, Thunderboy vanished like the morning dew, and he flew up to the heavens to be with his father. Well, later in that day, in the thunder and the rain, his mother heard the little voice of her son calling to her. And tearing her hair and wailing in her grief, the woman knew that Thunderboy had been taken from her forever, driven from her side and from his own innocent place in the world by the violence of another. To me, that is an amazing metaphor and story because we're all touched by that at a young age in some way. And it's like the myth of the Garden of Eden being driven from that innocence. We lose empathy because of the violence done in whatever way to us at a young age. I think that's why there's so much institutionalized violence against children, because it prepares people to be controlled at an older age. But that loss of empathy goes deeper. You see, the, the empathy that we have, the innocence, once we lose that, once it's shattered, we lose the connection with those around us and with the world. We can't feel pain. We're afraid of feeling pain. We can't feel outrage because it might cause us to take action and run a risk. And so we become frozen accomplices in the violence of the dead souls around us. So, I mean, that happens to all of us. The question is, how do you overcome that? And I've seen it overcome. I've seen it overcome in myself. And the way you do that is by not letting you hold it hold you back and going and sitting like I did in a circle with other people who had gone through hell. And I began to share my hell of losing my children. And I began to cry that early, one of those early days in the healing circles. And I began to share from my pain. And we found that commonality in our grief. And that was the seed, actually, of our movement back in 1996. Even before any of these things started, we had to find that grief in ourselves and then find a way to overcome it. I'm saying all that because it's um, really important for us to overcome this inner dissociation we all have. This inability to act, it isn't just that people are afraid and, and apathetic and all that, which is true, but those are symptoms of something, the thing I'm talking about. The loss of empathy at a young age. And there's a good book on that, actually, written by German psychologist Alice Miller called For Your Own Good. And it's talking exactly about that, um, you know, the, how when we lose empathy for our own pain as a child, we can't have it for others around us. We can tolerate injustice and wrong. And I think of the fact that every time I look at the latest rewrite on the genocide and the willingness of people to go along with these crimes, it's at a deep level. It's that that loss of an essential part of us. The ability, like I said, when you listen to Irene Fable earlier and the baby thrown in the oven, my immediate response was outrage because we know that stuff still carries on. I've got to stop that somehow, and I've never lost that. 20 years later, I haven't lost that feeling, and that we, it's because we all have it. 
And we have to recover that if we're going to do the work and be consistent in this work. I wanted to say that as a preload uh, because it's important to look at the history. You know, Remembrance Day was the other day. And I think every day is a Remembrance Day when something has happened at our hands, when our group crime is at work. We have to remember it every day because it continually gets erased. And the basic facts, and I want to kind of give an, an overview here, the, the crime, the cover-up, and the continuance, as I mentioned. The crime itself, so well-documented, murderbydecree.com, and I, I really urge you to go to that site because, you know, people say they do, but they often don't. You know, they say, oh, yeah, I'll read this. Then I talk to them later, and they haven't because, well, it's a lot to read, and that it isn't really. Uh, murderbydecree.com. Go to Appendix 1. That's at the back of the book. Documented offenses. You can read all 23 separate criminal acts which constitute genocide. And when you read those things that happened to innocent children over a century and a half, premeditated murder, torture, sterilization programs, thrown in ditch, you think of how they could get away with that and how this can be published and nothing be done to the perpetrators ever, since, of course, they're still in charge. That's, you know, the, the, the first thing to keep in mind. The second thing is go to Appendix 5, Mass Graves in Canada, a list of 28 burial sites at former Indian residential schools published by us in March of 2008 for the first time. Sent to all the media, sent to the police, sent to everybody, totally oblivious, never reported. Even when we did a dig at the mass grave of children at the Brantford Mohawk Anglican School, Brantford, Ontario, late 2011, the, right, 11 years ago right now. Not one media picked it up, except the local Mohawk newspaper. Total blackout, and then they presumed to talk about it years later when they do their controlled date at Kamloops, where they found bones, but then, like they always do, the Mounties and the Bank Council puppet chiefs destroyed the bones, and then said, no, we didn't find anything. Like asking the serial killer what they found, uh, you know, under his own house. But, you know, it's like um, uh, I remember early in a, in a circle, um, one guy described at the Kamloops School, Jesse Jules, his name was, he said they had to ca carry a boy out back because he'd been so badly beaten. He wasn't dead yet, but they were told to go bury him. And he never felt right about that boy, so he crawled out at night to go check and it turns out he saw the boy had tried to crawl out of the grave. He wasn't quite dead, but they buried him alive. And I remember when he told me that, it was, you know, the look of despair he gave me was, well, this is, no one's ever going to be held responsible for this. He just assumed that. He knew that, that the system that did it would get away from it, get away with it. And when you're in that long enough, when you're in that reality, you've, you have the feeling that the powers that be want you to have. You feel despair. You give up. And a lot of people have done that. But it only takes one or two or three or four not to give up for this thing to continue, and we've proven that over the years. That evidence is there, murderbydecree.com. We don't have to elaborate all this because it's all there for you to read. Although, if you want to listen, if you go to the bbsradio.com slash stand site, June 20th, 2021 show, we document in detail a lot of those crimes. It's a good educational resource to use. That crime and the campaign, the next stage, of course, was the campaign that exposed it. And that really began in 1998, like I mentioned, that downtown Vancouver forum we did, followed by the tribunal, the IRAM tribunal, that was a UN-affiliated group that documented all these crimes, recommended to the UN that Canada be charged with genocide. You know, 25 years ago that happened, and yet never acted on after pressure by Canada at the UN. But then for the next 10 years, the formation of our movements, like Friends and Relatives of the Disappeared, that began occupying and protesting the churches across Canada. The, um, you know, and, and that escalated into eventually the so-called apology in 2008, which was just the beginning of the institutionalized cover-up. Second phase, 2008 to 2013, we went viral. We went international as a result of that. It springboarded to setting up 
The same kind of movements all over the world, the International Tribunal of Crimes of Church and State that formed the common law court that put Pope Benedict on trial and Queen Elizabeth forced him out of office, Benedict and three cardinals out of office, and that common law movement that we began now spreading all over the planet, enunciated especially in our Republic Alliance movement, now embraces people working on these common law republics in 12 countries. And the final phase, 2013 to the present, kind of a strange combination of the blossoming of all this, and then that's collapsed, it's shut down as we got the corporatocracy raising its ugly head. And a whole new struggle to show that, yes, now the genocide's aimed at all of us. So what you find through all of that is the, the criminals in power continually change the narrative to confuse and bury the truth. They say one minute, yes, there are graves, and the next minute there aren't. And it they also rely on the public will to disbelieve and the ability, amazing ability now with the internet to erase memory. You know, I read that in just 12 years, in the 1990s into the new century, the internet went from comprising 1% of all two-way communications to 98%. Everything suddenly went on the internet, and so it can all be controlled very easily, as can memory, as knowledge and everything. That's why we have to continually work around that. So I'm touching on all that because uh, I want to get into this in the second part of the show. And uh, to take a break from my voice um, and other, uh, just the need to kind of uh, change the tempo a little bit here, we're going to listen to a, a reflection I did in 2019 before any of this started. And it's really about, I mentioned earlier about the diminishing aspect, how we're diminished. And there's an amazing passage in, in the Old Testament judges where it says God grieves over the sins of his people. And so God is diminished. The word in Hebrew is nepesh. The nepesh is diminished. That The substance of God is diminished because of the evil of his own people. It's a strange partnership between God and humanity. If we suffer, God suffers. If we are diminished, so is God. And what you can hear in the passage of Mary the song of praise, what we call the Magnificent, which is heard at this time of year in Advent season. What you're going to hear there is the exact opposite. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. God and humanity expand because of the joy and the, the realization Mary realizes she's bringing Jesus into the world. So I did a little reflection on that. I want to relate it in the second half of the show to what we're talking about, how not to diminish, how to expand and magnify ourselves. We'll be back after this reflection. Hi everyone, Kevin Annett's Eagle Strong Voice again. This is my sermon for the fourth Sunday in Advent, December 22nd. It's entitled, Slaughtering Children, Business as Usual in the Palace. This is about the slaughtering of the innocent by King Herod. And when the wise men had left, look, a heavenly messenger came to Joseph and cried, Wake up! Take the baby Jesus and mother and flee to sanctuary and live there until I bring word. For King Herod will seek to destroy the baby. Then Herod set out in his wrath to exterminate all of the helpless innocents in Bethlehem and its region, who were two years old and younger, relying on the knowledge of the wise men. And from every hilltop came the call, the call to mourn and to weep inconsolably, for the mothers of the dead cannot be comforted. While their tiny butchered remains lie under your feet, they were happy, innocent children, and they were slaughtered and thrown into secret graves. Just think about it. Try to imagine that. Try to picture it and feel their suffering. Well, can you? Will you dare to? Because they died at the hands of church and state. These were official killings. And so you're not supposed to ask about what happened to those children. You're not supposed to even know or care what happened. Or even imagine the experience of it happening. You're not even allowed to cry out and horror and, and outrage and call for the horror to stop. Your heart is to remain distant and numb, just as the victims are to remain silent and forgotten, or to remain invisible. Because the killers are still in charge. The killers of those children are still running the governments and the churches and the businesses. And if you mention the fate of those babies and ask who is to blame and why it happened, the killers will strike at you. So do the smart thing. Stay quiet. 
Think of nice, positive things. Pay your taxes that allow the crimes to continue. And don't imagine those mass graves of children or the horrible screams of babies being chopped to pieces. Sacrifice your soul as their little bodies were sacrificed. All for the service of the emperor. You can do something else instead. It's risky, but it's possible. You can do what your soul and those victims require. You can risk everything in your life for the sake of the lost children. And for all the others who will die today and tomorrow at the hands of the same killers robed in stately office. Well, that's the situation today in Canada, in America, or anywhere else in the so-called civilized world here in the year 2019. The same was true in Judea in the year 4 BC. The crime and the choice continue. In a way, that's all there is to say today. What matters is not what we say, but what we do. All the words spoken over the years, all the long interviews and tomes written about child sacrificial killings and genocide by church and state and baby trafficking, none of those words have stopped the killer's knives. The crime continues today unabated. And the only way it's ever going to stop is when we place our own bodies between those innocent victims and the killers who are coming for them. This sermon, like my life, is dedicated to that purpose, to stop them. Well, today it's obscenely ironic that the Christian churches that have spilled the blood of so many children will be presenting the gospel reading on the forthcoming Sunday in Advent, December 22nd. When you consider the enormous anger and denial among Canadian churchgoers, whenever we've tried speaking to them about their genocidal acts, you can bet that very few people in the pews in the Anglican, the Catholic, the United Churches this Sunday, very few of them are going to draw a connection between Herod's slaughter of the innocent babies and his attempted slaughter of Jesus that they hear in the Bible, connecting that with their own murder of over 60,000 Aboriginal children over a century in the so-called residential schools. Because the Christians' once-a-week happy hour in church is not designed to place themselves in the Bible story or make it apply to their own lives. Well, despite all that, the blood of the innocent still cries out through the strongest cathedral church door and the most completely closed human heart. As the Gospel passage today concludes, the mothers of the dead cannot be comforted. They cannot be comforted by all of the apologies by church and state killers, or all the reconciliation babble, or all the blood money payoffs, or all the fake government inquiries. Because there's no moral statute of limitation on murder any more than there's a legal one. The guilt remains. The killers of children stand convicted and guilty and sentenced by the very fact of their crime, even if they be kings and rulers and popes. Well, that's the powerful message in today's Gospel reading from Matthew. It's made doubly powerful by how closely it reflects how things actually operate in the world of politics then and now. For this is a story of the ritual killing of children, one of the oldest practices in history, and a practice of church and state as common and as legal as war and genocide. The story goes, a group of so-called wise men, hired and dispatched by King Herod himself, search out a rumor that a baby is about to be born who's going to overthrow King Herod. There's kind of a dark humor that runs through this whole passage. Like any politician, Herod blithely cons the not-so-wise men into being his agents. He says, you know, I want to worship that newborn Messiah too. Please go find him. Well, the murderous intent is always surrounded in that religious garb, that self-righteous projection. Because it isn't isn't it a fact that people, and especially rulers, can more easily kill and order killing when they know that there's a God who sanctions and forgives them for all their deeds. And so, like obtuse academics or unwitting spies on a black ops mission, the bright boys go to work for the killer on a throne. They eventually discover the little threat called Jesus in a manger, and they dutifully inform the king. Well, are these guys naive? Are they just doing their job, or are they just stupid? Either way, their news frightens Herod and makes him even more paranoid than he already is, like anyone with a lot to lose. He sees conspiracies everywhere. He distrusts his bright boys, and he tries to have them arrested. Well, failing that, he 
then goes after baby Jesus, using the information so conveniently provided by his wise guys. But Jesus and his family have been tipped off, and they skedaddle away to a safe house somewhere. Well, frustrated not once, but twice, Herod has to save face, and so like any ruler feeling his power slipping from him, he commits crime. He orders mass murder. Every child in the area under two years old is killed. Well, this clumsy scattergun approach fails to hit Jesus, of course, and one can almost hear the gospel writer chuckling up his, the sleeve of his robe, despite all the bloodshed. Warning. Exile. Murder. The usual pattern of corporate damage control. And then, of course, comes the final stage. The great mourning of this ritual killing that can never find comfort. The cries that never stop in any heart that's still alive. That's how this gospel story concludes. With the reality of life. Nothing is healed. Nothing is fixed. Because it's carrying on. And the killers don't feel sorry. At all. And that should be evident. Well, it may... This gospel passage may end on that message of mourning, unending mourning and wailing. But when you look deeper, that's the biblical answer to official murder. To the ones who never worry about covering up their mess because they know it's all legal and they're going to get away with it, like they always do. The Bible says, sure, go ahead, worldly rulers can get away with anything, even the ritual satanic slaughter of children. Just look around the world, people. It's the norm. In the Mormon Church, in the Roman Catholic Church, all the major religions do it. That's been documented. We know that now for a fact. Just look at murderbydecree.com. Okay, that may be the fact of the world, but the survivors are a threat to all of that. The ones who survive with the memory and the knowledge of what these bastard criminals are doing, they're the answer. Because they can remember the crime and the fallen ones. That's a great power, they, because they can keep the truth and the memory alive. The memory of those children are kept alive by the survivors. But only... Only if they keep on shouting out the truth, loudly and publicly. Not going into counseling and feeling better about yourself and staying quiet or giving a gag order after giving a bit of money (laughs) from the killers. No, that's not what we're to do. We're to keep shouting out the crime loudly. That's the only way we pay homage to the fallen and honor them. It's the only way this thing is ever going to stop. By letting God's own pain and outrage yell through our mouths. That's the wrong That's carrying on today. And that shout against the wrong carries on forever. That's the nature of God. doesn't back off with the truth, like we're always pressured to do. Well, isn't it amazing how even at his birth, Jesus caused hysteria among rulers and poses such a threat to established authority? Our innocence and honesty always evokes that kind of reaction in the guilty and causes them to come down on us. Like any truth-teller, Jesus became a refugee from state terror from day one, and a wanderer in poverty and exile. And he stayed that way to the day of his judicial murder on a cross. So it's no accident that Jesus has always been a symbol and a great inspiration to the poor and the oppressed everywhere, for his life and death as the permanent outsider mirrors their own experience of the world. Well, middle-class churchgoers are another matter. They can't relate to the man, Jesus, except as an abstract cult figure. They tend to be left cold by the human Jesus and by any equating of him with rebellion against the established order or with the underclass, even though scripture is full of that association of him and the poor, him and the struggle to overturn existing society. Well, as a clergyman, I constantly experience this dichotomy between how the poor view Jesus and how the affluent do. Take Jesus' first message when he gets up in the in Luke 4, they describe this, when he gets up in his hometown uh, synagogue in Nazareth and proclaims that he's come to set the captives free, to raise up the poor and to open the prison doors and let everyone free. Well, that passage has always tended to alarm and confuse the my wealthier parishioners. It genuinely confused them. said, like, what is this anarchist trying to do, right? But it brought... The same passage brought a relief of smile and amusement among poor folks, among Indians, among the other outcasts in the pews. This divide in the response of rich and poor became even greater when Jesus concludes his proclamation by announcing that he's inaugurating something called the Jubilee Year, that Hebrew tribal event, 
that was really a social revolution. It's when all the debts were canceled, all the land and wealth returned to people, shared equally. It was that leveling down of society, the Jubilee year. Well, Jesus, in other words, has been causing upset and turning things upside down ever since the day of his birth, and we still see that in the churches today, and in any of us who try to embody that radical message. Well, that fact in today's gospel message doesn't exactly fit the feel-good, festive, middle-class Christmas season, because it lays out the four turbulent realities that characterize Jesus' life and work, like a cycle of life and death. A warning of danger, an escape into exile, a massive killing of the innocent, and a mourning for those fallen. To understand that, we have to go deeper into those four actions in the story by understanding their word, origin, and meaning. Well, the first action is a warning issued by unseen protectors, often the only ones who do help us. You have to get away now or you'll be destroyed. That warning. Well, the Greek word for warning is krematso, and that means to be admonished by God and given a new purpose and name. You're not just given a warning. You say, okay, here, here's some camouflage. Here's a new identity so you can escape. In other words, you're not only yanked to your feet all of a sudden, but you're garbed with a new identity to get you the hell out of there. How else can you operate in this kind of murderous and deceptive world? Second step, you flee into exile. The word is fuego. In Greek and Latin, means to fly, to fly away. But there's more to it than that. The word also means... You shun evil by departing from it. So in other words, this fleeing isn't an act of fear, but it's actually part of a positive step into an inner cleansing of separating ourselves from the evil evil around us that inevitably affects us. Going into exile from everything we know is our first spiritual act in order to reform ourselves according to a higher heavenly aim. Throughout our many myths and legends, it's like that. The hero leaves his home country and people to go into foreign lands, in order to discover his true true purpose and his true strength. Well, because of that, the boot always comes down. The empire strikes back, state terror, then slays the innocent. Step three. In Matthew 2, verse 16, the Greek word for slay, as in slew the innocent, is anareo. And that means to steal and then exterminate. The way animals are grabbed, bound up, penned in a cage, and then ritually slaughtered. The same word is used to describe sacrificing an animal or a child. It's part of a massive blood ritual going back thousands of years, whereby people believed that they were purified by the killing of something that is totally pure and innocent. You find in the the Hebrew word kadash, it means two things all at the same time. It means to sanctify, to make holy, and to sacrifice. We make something holy by murdering it. And there you have it. Bingo, the source of the crime. For wired into the language and thought of Judeo-Christianity is the ancient tribal belief that one cannot truly worship God and be made pure without ritually murdering the best, the purest, and the most innocent among us. Why else were the firstborn children of the Canaanites bound and thrown into the fire pit of their rapacious god Moloch, the fire god who ate children, Why was God's own firstborn son, Jesus, sacrificed on a cross? And why today is the death of the firstborn children of Ninth Circle cult members in the Mormon and Catholic churches the ticket of admission into the higher circles of those organizations? For all the same reason, innocent blood is still believed to be our key to worldly power and even ultimate paradise in heaven. Beyond sick... But what can do one can do in the face of this murderous infamy, this monstrous crime? What can one do in the face of it but wail and mourn without end? And when it, wailing isn't just complaining, it's shouting out a message. This kind of unending lamentation follows from the crime that we talk about today. In verse 18 in the passage today, the word for lament is threnos. The word in Greek, threnos, which means to cry out forever. It doesn't stop. But it also means, there's a double meaning again, it also means to warn, trouble, and frighten. As the mothers of the slain children who cannot be comforted cry out on their agony, they're also issuing a warning to the world, one that troubles and frightens people, as it must. For what else than that can rouse a compliant, a complicit population who are party to these crimes? What else can arouse them from that to do more than simply feel sorry for the victims?
The gospel message today, and like so much of the gospel, is not meant to be politely listened to and then go away unmoved. It has to cause an eruption in the listener for change to work. There has to be an inner turmoil that breaks us free from the chains of evil and slavery forged on us since birth. Without that inner explosion, our hearts and lives will continue to be unmoved by the mass murder of children and will continue to refuse to stop the killers. And so now, each of you have a choice to make. You too have been warned to flee from such an association with death. You must accept a new name and purpose and go into exile from your life. From all that you have known, if you are to be made fit to bear witness to the crime and to give voice to the grief and to the fallen children. All of this is for a higher purpose, to make you fit to be the means of God's revolution, by which the blood-soaked rulers and their evil prince of darkness are destroyed forever as the new creation dawns. As Jesus says later in the Gospel of Matthew, that which you refuse to do for me, you're refusing to all of my children, and that which you do to the least of my children, you also do to me. Well, may the great mystery lead you from this land of lies and murder, and remake you in your own exile to be fit for the coming world. And for the least of these are suffering children. Their cries continue to reach out to you. Amen. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. More to come. And we're back. Well, you know, um, <laughs> passion, sourceable courage. You know, courage is a stubbornness, but it's got to have a fire behind it. And that's what is as close as the recognition that these things are happening as we speak. So it's not rocket science here, folks. It's pretty simple. I want to end uh, in the last 15 minutes by um, picking up something on that. And, um, you know, it, it's realizing that we're all going through a kind of beating. And when you've been beaten up, most of us respond by pleading either to the beater or to the world. We cry out about the terrible thing done to us, and we wait for mercy or for a helping hand. We exhaust ourselves trying to convince people and win their support. And because we keep looking to others, nothing usually happens. But here's the thing. Some of us evolve beyond pleading, and we actually begin to change. We see the brutality that we face, not just against us, but in the whole world. We see it for what it is, and we clench our own fists, preparing for the next time. We have no need to summon help or convince anyone of anything because our attention is now on the next battle and our own capacity to endure it. Well, I had to evolve like that quickly because I was under fire. My life was being destroyed. My children were being taken from me. Friends were dying all around me. The attacks were unending. So I had to either fold or fight back by finding that resource in myself. I stopped trying to compulsively prove to the world my case and the evidence I had acquired. I learned to turn away from that kind of dependency, like waiting on others, and find my own purpose, what I could achieve in this moment. And that is when our movement began to take off. The one thing I had launched became something more than mere protest. We became the power that would govern events and force change. We weren't acted on anymore, and we didn't react to what was happening to us. We established something new. And you see how that's blossoming now all over. The common law republic movement in this forcing the criminals at the highest level to admit to the crime, all of that because of finding that power within ourselves. The full panoply of that shift came as a shock to me because as one fixed in a desperate battle, my old mind and instincts yielded grudgingly. But the impact of what we did toppled leaders and raised up the crush just as the prophecy promised, just as Mary said in the Magnificat. And that miracle began with an inner shift in all of us, and from there spread out and touched others. So that is something that we can't ever forget, because it's really the source of what we're doing. And um, in that regard, I wanted to mention that uh, as a resource for this, really urge people to consider 
getting involved in a republic alliance. This is a way to overcome the parochialism you feel. Often, you know, a lot of the, lot of the people who get involved with us are living by themselves off in a little town somewhere, and they don't know what to do. Well, linking up that way with others gives you that sense. But more than that, go out and look in your own neighborhood, literally in your own backyard, because it's happening everywhere. And there's a lot of strength everywhere, but you've got to scratch beneath the surface to find it. You know, one of the uh, the things people also asked is the, because I hadn't quite finished that in the first part, the um, the concealment of this is a study in itself. You could do a whole feature film on just how this crime is covered up, but how they shoot themselves in the foot of the process. I was, uh, one of the books I'm quoting from, there was a book I wrote called The Sacrifice, and it's about the, the death of my uncle, my eldest uh, my dad's eldest brother, Bob, Bob Anna, who was a young 19-year-old uh, sub-lieutenant on a Canadian destroyer, got torpedoed in the English Channel just before D-Day. And Bob was in the water with 100 guys. And the British canceled the rescue mission and let them drown because there was a possibility that, in fact, they were, they were sunk not by the Germans, but by friendly fire of a British mortar torpedo boat nearby. And so the Brits wanted to cover it up. And they canceled the rescue mission. They lied to the other Canadian destroyer nearby saying they were going to pick these guys up. And then they just let them drown in the water. And the more I dug into that, I came across something which totally relates to the cover-up of genocide in Canada. Because early on in 1996, when I got into the Kerner Library archives at the University of British Columbia, and I found all these residential school records, I found a reference to something called a legacy file. And what that was, it turns out, was a deliberate move by the British Empire right after World War II to conceal all of the crimes all over the world in the colonial era, the genocide in Canada, everything. And this was actually reported in the Guardian newspaper in England in 2012, a series of articles. And basically what happened was right after World War II, the Brits knew they had a lot to conceal now that their empire was ending and countries were gaining their independence. And so they systematically went through all of the records in the colonial office, including records from Canada, the residential schools and elsewhere. And they tagged things called uh, uh, anything that incriminated evidence like deliberate murder, uh, killing people in prison camps like they did, um, planned extermination of, of you know, non-English speaking people like in native children and that. These things are deliberate and constant. Those were all tagged with a W, a watch file, things to be destroyed. And they were replaced with a legacy file. And in the legacy file was a fabricated account to make the whole thing look good. Well, what does that sound like? It's exactly what's happened with the whole residential school campaign and cover up in Canada with the farcical Truth and Reconciliation Commission set up by the killers themselves, the churches and the government, allowing them to censor all of the records, not allowing criminal charges to be brought. No names are allowed to be mentioned. All of that was a repetition of this thing called the legacy files. And I realized that, you know, the, the reason my uncle was allowed to be killed and drowned by the British in the English Channel, and the reason those native children, their death is still not known about, is from the same institutionalized cover-up at the highest level of the British Empire and the corresponding same kind of cover-up in the Vatican, since the Vatican and the British Crown were the two major forces of genocide in Canada and around the world. So it's very interesting the way family patterns go like this. It, it, almost like, you know, that I was raised with the story of my Uncle Bob, how he died. He actually drowned because he gave his life jacket to a, a wounded sailor. We learned that from a petty officer from Winnipeg who survived. He said Bob gave away his life jacket in the water, tried to swim for it, and never made it. And that story always struck with me as a kid. The willingness to die, to give your life for, for a wounded man. Now, of course, in that situation, what else do you do? But think of the other. And so I, that inspired me in my life. And it's interesting how the same cover-up that, you know, kept us annets in the dark about what had happened to one of our own, same cover-up affected the children for whom I would one day go to bat and have my own life destroyed, like giving away my life jacket my uncle did, but with a higher glory. And that was, you know, the old saying, better love has no man than to give his life for others. Well, 
I hope somebody puts that on my headstone when I die because it really sums up who we are. And so I, I thought I should mention that because it's we look at the institutionalized nature of this crime, so is the cover-up. But what is amazing, folks, and I want to end on this, is that despite all of this, everything you've heard, the institutionalized crime and cover-up, we exposed it anyway. And think of that. There weren't many of us who did that. There's a handful of them. Most of them were homeless, starving Native people. And we forced Goliath to budge. We hit him right in the face with our stone of the truth. Nothing more powerful weapon than the truth, but you've got to aim it right and you've got to be consistent. We never gave up year after year. And we put it in their face when they were most vulnerable. As Sun Tzu says in The Art of War, attack what they love, attack where they're weak, not where they're strong, and you can defeat a bigger enemy. We proved that. And it's an ongoing victory, but only when we learn the lessons. And that's why I'm reminding folks again, taking a break from the last few shows, which is when Owen and I were from the Republic Alliance, I've been talking about strategy and tactics and a lot of practical things. We have to remind ourselves routinely what caused this movement, the victories we've won, how we won the victories and passing them on. That's what elders do. And it's funny, I was 38 when this struggle began. I'm 67 next year. It's almost 30 years, but I'm playing that role now, passing on these lessons and helping train new generations because friends, our grandchildren will be fighting this battle. And we can't be naive about that. We can't look for short-term solutions. They don't exist. We're facing a new global society of total domination, total oppression. There's been nothing like it before in history. The old models, the old terms don't apply anymore. We need to have new minds, new hearts, new imagination of how we fight this thing. So I hope you've got some of that from the show today. And um, we'll be having more of that. I actually played that reflection in response to a woman in North Bay who said she really appreciates the sermons. It's really helped her daughter. She's asked, actually, if she can come on the show sometime to talk about the situation her daughter has faced. And um, I got another call today of a survivor, of a woman who knows about the missing women along the Highway of Tears, how the RCMP have been targeting her, trying to kill her because of her knowledge. Well, hopefully we'll have these folks on soon to show you how the crime is continuing today. But so is our powerful resistance, because it comes from a force greater than ourselves. And I knew that the day I performed that exorcism in St. Peter's Square, and the next day a tornado hit, and that week the truth of Pope Benedict's involvement in child killing and trafficking came out in the European media, there's a power working through us folks that none of us can really understand, but we trust it. It's like we trust the light in each other, the light that can never be put out. So we're going to end on a uh, really good song, really uh, a song it's called The Minstrel Boy. It's an old Irish tune for my people. Why personal unswerving consecration is essential in this battle. And you can follow all of this work, murderbydecree.com, republicofkanata.org, K-N-A-T-A, republicofkanata.org. And write to me, angelfire101 at protonmail.com. Learn the lessons. Go at murderbydecree.com. Go to ITCCS archives and ITCCS updates. All the latest news, all the resources you'll need to carry on this battle so that our grandchildren can have a future. I've got a lot of confidence, folks. You don't live this long and have these many victories and defeats without being confident. It's from our defeats and mistakes that we learn and grow. Never fear them. If you want to write to the Republic Alliance and get involved in our international movement now, write to Republic National Council at protonmail.com. It's been an honor, folks. I love being here with you. I hope you write to me, since so few of you ever do. It'd be good to hear back, hear some feedback. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. Stay strong, stay clear. We're back next week. Love you all.